Hi there, and thanks for joining us today. We're going to read from one of my favorite passages in Scripture today, in Psalm 23. When I think of Psalm 23, I think of a place like this. It's beautiful here. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Psalm 23? Let me pray for us as we begin today. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us by it. Lord, that you would open our hearts to understand what it is you're saying to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's read in Psalm 23. This is what it says. The Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters and he refreshes my soul. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of God. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. If you have, if you have your Bible open, just leave it open, as I'm going to be referring back to Psalm 23 now and again. Christians believe it was David, the shepherd boy turned hero king at about 1000 BC who originally wrote this poem as well as 73 others in Psalms. But Psalm 23 is far and away the most loved of them all. The vivid imagery of this poem has shaped and influenced art for thousands of years. But why? What is it about Psalm 23? What inspired David to write down these compelling images of his God, a God who shepherds, and a God who hosts. I believe what David gave his readers was an inspired picture of how God acts towards people and how God shows his love for his people. There are two roles that I want you to see. David shows us that God acts like number one, a shepherd, and number two, a host. Right away at the beginning, we see the Lord is my shepherd. But what I think we sometimes gloss over is in verse five, where we see God prepare a table. Now, God often assumes the role of shepherd in scripture as a special sign of his love for us. I don't want us to miss this. For God, the creator, to express his nature in this way is humble and undemanding and should leave a deep impression on you and me. By using the image of a shepherd, David shows God's willingness to stoop down and invite us to follow him so that we may rest safely under his care. It's no surprise that David, the shepherd boy turned hero king, relates to God as the shepherd of his own life, as the great shepherd of Israel. Because you see, David knew what it meant to fight off would-be thieves and predators from his sheep, what it meant to guide these humble animals to pasture, what it meant to leave the whole flock to go after the lost one sheep. And so, and so David recognized God's shepherd love for him on his own life path. 
Theologian Bruce Walke said it this way, that Psalm 23 is a poem of trust, celebrating God's goodness and loving kindness. And so you and, you and me can see that Psalm 23 at its heart isn't about the journey that the sheep goes on, but about the great love of the shepherd. So when you and I read Psalm 23 and bring it to memory, we should see it glorifying God's competence and not the sheep's efforts. Yeah, we should see ourselves in it, but we ought to see ourselves as the rescued ones, the ones who are cared for, the sheep who experienced the chesed love of the shepherd. <laughs> Maybe you're thinking I misspoke when I said chesed love. <laughs> yes, I did say that. This word chesed, translated as love and mercy and loving kindness in verse 6, is very, very important, and I wanted to draw your attention to it. Actually, the writers of Scripture in the Old Testament use it well over 200 times between Genesis and Zechariah. And we can see in the NIV, when I'm reading out of today, that it's translated as love. You see, hesed essentially means help to the needy. There isn't an English word that fully reflects the meaning, but hesed talks about the kind of love given when a partner in need, like the sheep, depends on another for rescue, the shepherd. And the rescuer does so freely out of his kindness, out of his mercy, out of his love, and out of his loyalty. And this is what David is trying to show the reader. The sheep who experienced the chesed love of the shepherd. By showing us this, he's praising what God has done in his life. And so Psalm 23 is not about the effort of the sheep, but about the competence of the shepherd, about the care of the shepherd. The competent shepherd is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of following even into the darkest valley. In verse 4, it makes it very clear where the believer finds his confidence in, the in times of trouble, namely in the intimate presence of God. He doesn't have to fear the darkest valley doesn't have to fear loneliness. He can stare death in the face without fear. But why? Is it because the sheep is so strong? Is it because of his bravery or his effort? Why is the psalmist able to walk in the darkest valley and fear no evil? Is it because of any measure of competence that he has? No, no it isn't. But it is because of the active, working, and intimate presence of God, the shepherd, the voice that the sheep follow. It's because God's presence is there with him. It's because you are with me. You are with me. You're with me. When David speaks of the rod and the staff, he's reaffirming God's comfort in the midst of his trouble. And we can almost hear Jesus' words come to our memory, right? In this world, you will have trouble. He, Jesus never promised us that we would live a life of, of even minimal trouble. <laughs> He's not a God who promised me continued health or financial wealth. God has shown us that, in fact, we will have trouble, but you are with me. That he is with us in it. I was reminded of this as I spoke with a friend just last week. His wife's battling cancer, and it's really hard. And I asked about their life and faith, and he said to me, 
You know, John, God never promised us a life without adversity. He promised he would be with us in it. What great hope that is. It's not hope that's defeated by cancer. It's not hope that's defeated by financial ruin or kids that run away from everything you've ever taught them. No, not this hope. It's not hope that is defeated by adversity. Instead, it's all the more pronounced because of our adversity. This hope is the kind that gives you joy even death can't contain. To the one who trusts, do you trust him? He's with you and he will comfort you. Now, some of you are likely thinking, yeah, that's great for you, but you have faith. And that's what faith does for people like you. I wish I could believe in God and I've tried, but I just can't develop something like the faith that you have. But friends, you got to listen to me. Your real problem is not that you can't believe in God, but that you're refusing to doubt yourself. You're committed to the belief of your own competence to run your life. And you believe it against all of the evidence around you. Come on, admit what you know deep down, that you are not wise and able enough to run your own life. Doubt yourself. And then you will begin to move toward faith in God. Psalm 23 is not about the ability or the effort of the sheep but about the competence and the care of the shepherd. That same shepherd that walked with David and guided him all of his life is the same shepherd that leads those who love him. Can I make a quick observation about the valley of the shadow of death? Have you ever noticed that verse four comes right after verse three, that he leads me on right paths for his namesake, even though I walk through the valley? This is what I will say. The dark valley with all of its griefs is as truly one of the right paths as the green pastures. When we know this and when we trust the good shepherd, it takes a lot of the sting out of suffering. His presence is with us and that overcomes the worst thing that remains. It overcomes our fear. Let's continue to trace the poet's hand. As we look into the Psalms, he goes to verse five. You prepare a table before me. The shepherd now becomes a host. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Just wait, let me, let me say that again. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The same God who is shepherd, who is present with you in the midst of any adversity is also the unflinching host who sets a fine banquet table before you in the presence of your enemy. It's important that we see God revealing himself as serving his people. He leads this way, as should we, right? And here is a timeless picture of him hosting an extravagant dining experience in the presence of your enemies. Wow, my imagination takes me to the pitched battle scenes of Braveheart. And there, in the center of the battlefields, a fine lace table overflowing with charcuterie and fine wine, the grazing table that's so inviting and enticing and with enough seating for everyone. What a picture of our great host. 
Now, whether this is a picture of a feasting table on a battlefield like this or not, the point of it is this, that while evil makes ready for war, anxiety, chaos, God is not concerned or overcome by worry. Quite the opposite's true. He invites you and me into his strength and into his rest where we fear no evil, where we enjoy his presence, where our cup is overflowing with his hesed love. Psalm 23 is an assurance of faith, a reminder of trust. It's an Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8 or 2 Corinthians 12. Even in the worst situation, the shepherd is leading you and his grace is sufficient for you. Walter Brueggemann, so a theologian once said, Psalm 23 shows us the sacred canopy under which the community of faith can live out its life with freedom from anxiety. That there's a givenness in creation to be relied on. It's guaranteed by none other than God. As you and I experience the hesed love of God, our affections turn toward him. And we begin longing to be with him always. It's like as we experience God's healing care, for example, in our relationships, relationships where we thought no resolve was ever possible, but somehow God's peace, God's forgiveness turned a heart of stone to flesh. And then we're somehow, by some miracle, enabled to embrace those we try to forget. It's as we experience the Hesed love of God, as we experience the ministry of reconciliation, as we come to know his grace for us, as we follow his lead, our own hearts do this thing, like they've suddenly become magnetized and are ever turning toward true north, ever trying to find how God wants me to live my life, ever trying to follow his lead. It's as God's Hesed love for us changes us slowly, we begin to want to reprioritize our lives around what he cares about. And it's almost as if this heart that was once engineered to attain security, possess every conduit of comfort the world could give me, now is oriented toward what God loves, what he wants. This heart that tried to get the forever home, <laughs> that, that looked to freedom at 45 or some sort of investment scoop or maybe even the right neighborhood, whatever it is that I had set my heart on, this heart that tried to gain security in life by possessing it has been disoriented. A disoriented heart hears the message of God and doesn't know what to do with it. Let me give you an example of how the disoriented heart hears Psalm 23. Maybe this is how you're hearing me today. When, when we hear scripture say, I lack nothing. All you feel is lack and you have, a, you have a list of lack and a budget of how you're going to get it all. You hear the words, he leads me. But you can't hear him leading you. And you, you wonder, do you think a loving God would lead me to a place like this? The poem says, he refreshes my soul. He restores me, but you don't feel restored. Instead, I feel empty. Or I'm in need of help. I can't be alone in the silence. Get me buzzed. Help me to zone out. Let me listen to an audiobook, anything to ignore the silent howl of my soul. David wrote, you are with me and you comfort me, but you can't see him and you can't feel him. Scripture says my cup overflows, but it seems like you never have enough. 
Again, scripture goes on, goodness and love will follow me, but instead you're surrounded by chaos and anxiety where scripture proclaims that, that I will dwell with you forever. The last time you thought about forever, nothing lasted that long. Without a knowledge of God's grace, without an experience of his love, this is what happens to our hearts. A great disorientation. Tim Keller often says that religion is the default mode of the human heart, or what I've called disorientation. Religion is the default mode of the human heart. Christians who know the gospel only in principle continually revert to religion. They believe the gospel at one level, but at deeper levels continue to operate as if we're saved by what we can do, by our effort, by our ability. They continue to base their standing with God and their view of themselves on their spiritual and moral performance. And this leads to the disoriented heart, all sorts of anxiety, pride, inferiority, anger, and spiritual deadness. As if Psalm 23 was about the effort of the sheep, as if a life without lack came by attaining everything we ever wanted. Psalm 23 is about the competence and the care of the shepherd. If your heart is disoriented, by that I mean if you can feel the affections of your soul clinging to any other savior other than Jesus, then take a moment. Ask yourself, is this, all of this, is this what I've been trying to get? Is this what I wanted? Is this the rest that I wanted? Maybe you're a Christian and you're sitting there listening to me thinking, now I have a friend that really ought to hear this. And it's true. The non-religious are running from God. I, I think we would say that. But the religious and outwardly moral are running from God as much as the non-religious. And here's how. If you think that you can be blessed by God by being good, that is to be your own savior and leads you to think God owes you. So in a weird and twisted way, you're now in control of him. And so religion and non-religion are just two different ways of accomplishing the same thing, being your own savior and Lord. Psalm 23 has rightly found its place in the hearts of Christian readers. And we can't help but see Jesus when we read this psalm. The psalm that explores God as shepherd only points us to Jesus Christ. After all, in John chapter 10, Jesus announced to his disciples, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And Jesus did so on the cross to people from every culture, color, every creed in order to save them from guilt, from sin and even death. Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus is the ultimate comfort in life and in death. And just like the shepherd, Jesus comforts his people. But this is how he does it, by the experience of his hesed love, the knowledge of his grace for them, and the refreshing of his spirit by the intimate relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. The righteous path that Jesus will lead you on, he, he, our shepherd, is going to lead you and I on, is filled with streams through rolling hills, security and plenty. But that very same path will lead you into the darkest valley and even through it, 
The setting will change, but the shepherd will be constant. Jesus will be constant. Jesus is the good shepherd who is always with me and who is always with you when you're alone, even when you come face to face with your greatest demons. There is one who walks beside you and he's competent and he cares. You know, there's a moment in my favorite Narnia book, The Horse and His Boy, where Shasta, who's narrowly escaped with his life, has now made sure that all of his friends are safe and cared for, and, and now he's left alone. He's starving, he's exhausted, um, he's totally alone. And he begins to despair, and it's dark, it's the middle of the night, and he's on a mountain pass, and he's trying to get past the mountain, and he's joined by this mysterious and ominous companion. And he tells a stranger how unfortunate he's been, hoping for some sort of pity. And, some, and, and the stranger responds, uh, and he says this, I don't call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There's only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you that there were at least two the first night. There was only one lion, said the voice, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And Shasta gaped with an open mouth and said nothing. And the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses new strength of fear for the last mile so you should reach King Loon in time. I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at night to receive you. Aslan was the lion walking and guiding and comforting Shasta his whole life. It's a picture of Christ. Think of this more. Jesus is not only leading you now, but he will lead you to the end. Where, by his strength, his provision, and guidance, you're going to one day turn the key and open the door to a table prepared for you with lavish generosity. Why? <laughs> because everything was always yours in Christ. You lacked nothing. But for now, we have to trust his leading. Even though we can't see what's around the corner, we have to trust his leading. This is how we cultivate our trust, by praying and agreeing with the psalmist. We can pray this, I'm, I'm rich even though I have no money. I'm strong even though I fight disease. I am joyful even though I am surrounded by suffering. I have life even though I will face death. For those who live by faith can say, even though my situation may not be improved, my fear is removed because he is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. Do you see? The Christian life is not one where we obey God so that he will provide for us, or where we pray to him so that he will heal us and give us health. The Christian life is not a life that reaches out to get God because we can't. The gospel message of truth love is this, that Jesus reigns, that he's in control, and that he leads you 
as you trust in him. Would you pray with me? Lord, if I fed on your love, grace, and truth, I wouldn't be in any want. And in this life, I know I'll never attain that, but I also know that you're always with me. And someday you're gonna lead me to my true country, the home I've been looking for all my life. Help me to rest in that.